following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. If you have your Bible, please grab that and open that to the Gospel of John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of those around you on your seat. That's our gift to you. You can, you can have that and keep that. Uh, you can open the Bible. The large numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers, the small numbers, or the verse numbers. We're going to be in John, the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. In chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse 1. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning, and we simply ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and so illuminate your text, your word, that we might come to know it and believe it, to receive it as truth, and to be led from it to worship you. Father, we ask now for this time of study and of devotion that our hearts and our minds not only would be open to your word, but would be free from 
distraction and meandering thoughts, but give us, uh, Lord, even now a supernatural ability to hear the study that we may be built up into the head who is Christ. We thank you for this time. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are not able to gather, that you would comfort and encourage them by your word. And for those who profess the name of Christ, but do not live as Christ has taught us to live, would you, even by your word and spirit, convict them, your son Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we continue our study of the Gospel of John, you may notice here in chapter 14, a dominant theme arises, and we can pick up on that theme because of repetition. Particularly, the word repeated at least five times explicitly in the text this morning is belief. We can see there in verse 1, as he speaks to the disciples, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. He continues to repeat this over and over again, drawing to himself his disciples and intending to foster and encourage in their hearts a firm belief that Jesus is who he has claimed to be. Now, the Gospel of John is written for this particular purpose. At the end of the Gospel, in, verse, in chapter 20, John says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John's purpose in writing this Gospel, this letter to us and to his readers, is so that his readers might hear and see and believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. And he takes this, not because of some clever marketing on his own right, but because Jesus himself, in our text and elsewhere, says that belief is necessary for discipleship. If you are to be a disciple of Jesus, brothers and sisters, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are not claiming affiliation with, with him, association with Jesus, proximity to Jesus. You must claim belief in Jesus. This isn't merely friendship, acquaintances. This is solid belief. Another word we could use, trust or faith. What these words help us understand is Jesus, as God's Son, is for us our Savior, Redeemer. The work He does on behalf of His people applies to us, and we put our trust in Jesus because He is the Son of God and because His work of sacrificing Himself for us on the cross was satisfying to God's wrath, that he was risen again from the dead, that he has ascended to the right hand of God where he now sits and makes intercession for believers. When we say we believe that, we're saying we have trust. We have secure faith. Not abstract faith, not merely intellectual assent, but real, genuine belief. You this morning, I trust, have faith in the chairs you're sitting on. Now, there's no other particular reason you would believe that those chairs won't fall out from under you, except maybe they didn't last week, and you trust that they won't this week. Maybe if you're the 
extra cautious type, you've checked your chair this morning. Shake it a little bit to make sure no loose bolts came out. Only further to increase the trust in the craftsmanship of that chair so that you could put your weight on it and enjoy fellowship and worship together this morning. Belief is practical like that. Trust and faith needs to be put to use. Otherwise, it's not helpful to us. So when we say belief or trust or faith, and when Jesus says believe in me, he doesn't just mean say that I'm true. He means lean on me, trust me. I can bear the burdens that you have. So in this point in the, in the gospel, Jesus is now really in the beginning of what's called the farewell discourse. It's really his last bit of teaching to his disciples specifically. His public ministry is now over. He's in the upper room, and he's giving his last bit of instruction to his disciples before he's arrested, he's led to the cross, and dies. This is immensely important for a number of reasons, not least of which these are the very last things Jesus chooses to teach and to pass on to his disciples. Just consider if you knew you had hours yet to live, what you would want to pass on to your your loved ones. Jesus here, he says in his final hours, the most important things for his disciples to be about is trust that what Christ is about to do is right, is good. Believe in me. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. So why would their hearts be troubled? Because just earlier in chapter 13, Jesus tells them that he's about to leave them. He's about to go. He's about to be betrayed by one of them, and he's about to leave. He's going to go with the Father. And the disciples rightly understand that he's talking about his his death. Now, Jesus has made all sorts of statements about his impending death, and disciples have not clearly picked that up, and they're beginning to understand now Jesus is serious about this. Jesus is, is really about to be, be led to his death. This is what he's committed and resolved to do, to glorify the Father. Jesus will die. And so all of the emotions and the confusion begins to set in in this context. And in the middle of that, Peter, as always, will say, I will follow you and lay down my own life. Just look there in verse 36. Where are you going? And Jesus says, this is in chapter 13, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you will come afterward. And if Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So not only is Jesus going to leave his disciples, but now he's insinuating that his disciples will leave Jesus, that this whole thing for the last three years is going to basically fall apart in a matter of hours. These are disciples who have left everything. They've literally walked off the job. They've followed Jesus and spent the last three years listening, learning, following Jesus, who says that he must leave and that even some of them will betray him and deny him. And so belief, he says, needs to anchor disciples to Jesus because Jesus will go to the Father, and the disciples will be scattered throughout the earth. And the thing that unites all disciples together and unites those disciples to Christ will be their belief 
their trust, their faith in him. Belief is this dominant theme. Now, there's a practical problem here that Jesus says, believe me, to solve. That problem there is in verse 1. Do not be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus will leave. A disciple has betrayed him. One will even deny him. Do not be troubled in your hearts, he says. The antidote for this trouble, this vexation is, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So the practical problem of a troubled heart, Jesus says, is belief. Now this word trouble in verse 1 is the same word that Jesus has used just in the previous chapter about his own heart and his own soul being troubled. This is a deep sort of vexation, an irritation, a kind of anxiety, if you will. But there is a trouble that a sanctified heart, like Christ's, may experience. There's a kind of trouble that a sanctified heart might endure that is holy and that brings glory to God. But in our text, we see another kind of trouble that leads hearts like ours to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the sovereign purposes of God at work in our lives. And so Jesus demonstrates the former, the heart that trusts God, and so when it endures troubling circumstances, leans into that trust. Whereas the disciples here are in danger of being led to doubt what God is doing in their lives, the purposes that God is unfolding in the world and through Jesus particularly. And so their hearts are troubled, leading them not to trust, but to doubt God. And so we experience this like the disciples do. So the question I want us to focus on this morning from our text is this. How does faith or belief bring rest to an unrestful heart? How are the troubles of our lives calmed by belief in Christ? The answer I submit to you is that belief or faith anchors our hope in the promises of God. And it's the hope and the promises of God which stabilize believers in the season and the circumstances of doubt and trouble that looks upon Jesus and his faithfulness, so that we might endure those troubles. Hebrews 11, you may understand, is filled with examples of saints from the Old Testament that are stayed by the hope of their faith. Despite this troubling circumstances, they encountered. And Jesus tells his disciples they're about to enter into a chapter of their own lives. Well, they will be troubled. Belief and faith in Christ and hope in the promises of God will stay them. Our main idea this morning then is this our fears, our troubles, and our anxieties are only stilled when we truly believe in and are comforted by the promises of God. Our fears, troubles, and anxieties are only stilled when we truly believe in and are comforted by 
the promises of God. So we can't overcome our worries and our fears with anything but the promises of God which are true in Christ. That is, we can't overcome our worries and fears by simply compartmentalizing our troubles. Any compartmentalizers here? My ability to compartmentalize my problems and really my life is unmatched. It's led to conflict and strife. Sometimes it's a strength. Sometimes it's a weakness. I have no problem getting in an argument with my wife and then sleeping soundly like a baby. When I say I have no problem, I have a problem, (laughs) but I can jump from one box to another. But we can't overcome our worries and fears that way by just simply putting them in one box and living in another. That's not living and believing in the promises of God displayed through Christ. We cannot compartmentalize our way out of the troubles of our lives. Nor can we deal with them or overcome them by white-knuckling, by just grinning and bearing them. I'll just keep my chin down until I get to the end of this. Well, that just ignores all of the invitation that Jesus draws to himself, those who are dealing with trouble and anxiety, those who are troubled in their hearts, vexed in their lives, dealing with difficult circumstances, wondering, like the disciples are, are they about to be be abandoned by their Savior? Are they about to make mistakes that will cast them away from the promises of God's covenant? They cannot just white-knuckle their way through the end of it. They've got to, indeed, look to Christ, believe so we can't compartmentalize our troubles away. We can't white-knuckle them. Lastly, we can't, we can't deal with our anxieties and our worries simply through religious ceremony. That is, we, we, we have lots of traditions in Christianity, and I'm grateful for, for many of them. But some of them can become a kind of false coping mechanism that says, if I just come and I just sing some songs, maybe I'll take the Lord's Supper and I'll feel better about all my troubles. And I want to clarify, there is a, there's a balm that comes for those who are dealing with things in their life by singing and worshiping and taking the Lord's Supper. And I think you should think about that as we do that. But simply being here at church and reciting particular words by taking the Lord's Supper, by doing certain religious activities, will not make your troubles go away. And so you cannot overcome the worries and the anxieties and the fears of your heart by simply being more religious by simply doing more things, adding duties and commandments to your list so that you would feel more holy. No, our troubles, the worries of the heart, the anxieties that come into our lives are only met and are stilled by genuine belief in Christ, our hope which is anchored in the promises of God. A famous quote, of course, from Augustine in his confession says that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Not in our ability to compartmentalize, to grin and bear, or to perform our way from our troubles, but to find our rest in him. So the remainder of our time, we're going to look at our text, and I'm going to offer six promises from God's word for a troubled heart. Six promises from God's word for a troubled heart. First, notice that Jesus here in verse 2 through 4 promises a place for you. 
there is a place for you. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The, the, the balm of, of belief and faith and trust in Christ is that he indeed prepares a place for you, that there is a place for you by his side, that you will be with him, that you will be brought into the fellowship of God in the heavenly place. See, after being told that their master will leave them, confusion and despair now creeps into the disciples' mind there in the upper room. And Jesus probably could read it on their faces. The shock that one would betray them, the confusion after seeing Judas leave. Certainly Peter's own aghast at the insinuation that he would ever deny Christ. When Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, the antidote for the the anxiety and the troubling and the vexation of their hearts is found in believing that there is a place for them despite the difficulties that they will very soon go through. Perhaps the greatest insecurity that we carry around is the thought that we've pushed God too far away that we've become too blemished or too stained or too messed up or too negligent in our disciplines or too disappointing to Jesus, too sinful to be loved by God, to be welcomed by God, that we have some sort of place in the corner of the room of God's house, but certainly not welcomed into the dwelling place with God and Christ. This is an insecurity that many of us, if not all of us, carry around and manifest itself from time to time. When we think about the troubles we face, we think, this must be the cross I bear. This is my due course for the sin from that past week or the lifestyle I've chosen to live. And without getting into the weeds of how God works, brings things about into our lives, often we allow the line between what God is doing and disciplining and correcting us to bleed over into his condemning us. But if we are children of God, adopted by by God through the work of Christ, he does not draw us outside of his house, but continues to draw us in, no matter our difficulties, no matter our sins or our failures, because those sins and those failures have also been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Just consider the contrast there from verse 38 of chapter 13 with the beginning of verse Verse 1 and 14, when Jesus says that Peter will deny him three times, he comforts Peter. That says, there is a place for you in my father's house. That's why I go. And even though you will deny me, I go to prepare a place for you. For all of them, he says. All of the disciples of Jesus, all those who are believing in Jesus, have a place with him in heaven. This place, of course, is secured by belief. When he says, believe also in me, that is the condition upon which our room is made in the Father's house. So the point here, of course, is not what sort of lavish conditions that our heavenly home will be furnished with, 
It's not about the mansions or the popular kids' song, Big House with a Big Yard where you can play football. If you're a VBS kid, you know that song. No, it's about how Christ goes to prepare a place for us in heaven. The imagery here is one of a bridegroom who will go to his father's house and expand upon it. And in this day, they would essentially live on a compound with their family, and it was the husband's job to make a place for the wife to come that they would raise a family. Not all in one house, but building this, this more or less community together based on their relationship with one another. And Jesus says, as the bridegroom to the church, he's going to the Father's house to prepare a room. He's going to make room for us. So it's not about the lavishness of that room, the furnishing of that place, but that we have a home in Christ who abundantly and graciously provides more than enough room for every one of his disciples. That is, those who who are the least of those. Those who are, as Paul would call himself, the chief of sinners, who do not count themselves worthy, but nonetheless have been recipients of God's grace in Christ. So there's a place for you, troubled heart, with Jesus in the Father's house. Faith then, faith in this promise that there is a place for you, tells us that we will always have a home with Christ. We will always have a home with Christ. That's the promise that you believe. There's a place for you, Christian, in the Father's home, no matter how messed up you just performed. You will always have a home with Christ. Just consider the elder brother in the story of what's called the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The younger son takes his inheritance early, goes, squanders it, regrets it, and wants to come back, but he's too ashamed. He thinks his father certainly would not welcome him back. Well, the father does. He runs out and meets him in the field, but the elder brother there who felt like he was the one who should stay and did stay and he'd wait for his inheritance when the time came, did not welcome. But Jesus here is not like that elder brother who puts his nose up at the younger one who comes, but with the father runs to meet the brother and welcome him back into the household. In fact, offers the fattened calf for the celebration of the son's return. That Jesus is like the elder brother who does not put us out but draws us in. The promise for a troubled heart is that there is a place for you in the father's house. And faith and trust in Christ reminds us that we will always have a home with him and that we cannot be put out of it. The second promise for a troubled heart here we see in verses 5 through 6 is that Jesus secures the way to the Father's house and that he is the way to the Father's house. Of course, Thomas asked Jesus after he has said that you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, you know the verse, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus here speaks very bluntly and very clearly that Jesus is the way. And he is the way precisely, he says, because he is the truth and the life of God. Because he is the truth, because he is the life, He is also the way to the Father. There is no other way, he says to the Father, except through Christ. 
He is the truth of God. What does we mean by that? Well, John has already told us countless times throughout his gospel, but particularly in the first chapter, we know that God has put forward Christ and was the Word. That's God's revelation, His divine self-disclosure. What God wants us to know about Himself is perfectly and fully, completely revealed in Christ. Jesus is not just God's Word, but God's message. It is how we come to understand and know God. He is God's truth. But He's also the life, it says. In chapter 5 of this gospel, we hear that Jesus says that he has life in himself and so is able to give life because he is the source of it. In chapter 11, verse 25 of the gospel of John, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is able to say that I am the truth of God and the life of God because I have life in myself and I reveal and display and embody the very truth of God as his word. And so because of these two realities, Jesus being the truth and the life, he is the necessarily the way. There is no other truth but what is revealed in Christ, and there is no other life that which is given in Christ. And therefore, if you want the truth of God and to receive the life God offers, you must receive it through Jesus. And he does not say when he's the way, he does not say that simply follow in my footsteps and you'll be led to God but that he is the way. Jesus is not a path we follow, but it's, he's a person to embrace in order to know the Father. The gift of life offered to those who so desire it is received only when you embrace Jesus as the truth and the life. Only when we come to a person, not a series of things to do. And so he says, not... I know the way and will lead the way, but I am the way. He's not a path we follow, but a person we must embrace if we desire to be with him in the Father's house. So the promise we hold on to then when we have trouble in our heart and lives is that Jesus secures the way to the Father and is the way there because he is the truth and life of God. And so faith reminds us, in this promise, faith reminds us of the necessity of Christ. That is, he is not another God or one among many roads, but he is the true and living God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The, the, the very fullness of deity dwells in Christ, is embodied in his very person. He is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory, Hebrews 1 tells us. So there is no other God. He is not one way to God among many. He is not one road, as they say, that leads to God. But he is the living God. He is the way. When we believe the promise that Jesus is the way, we know that there is a necessity of knowing and believing Christ if we are to receive mercy peace and rest. He's not one God among many or one road among many, but the fullest and absolutely complete expression of God to mankind that ever was and never will be. There is no new revelation. There will be no clearer or finer point of who God is. Jesus is it. And this is exclusive. This is some will have it and some will not. There is some will not make their way to the Father because they did not do so through Christ. 
and some will. And this is not a popular sentiment in our culture today, to say that there is no other way to the true and living God except through his son, Jesus. But it's not meant to drive us further into anxiety. That truth that there is no other way to the Father except through Christ may to some burden them with an inability to, to know if they're truly accepted by God, to know if they've really satisfied Christ enough to really be with the Father, to, to think that if they can't satisfy Christ, if they can't follow Christ rightly, they'll never make their way to the Father or to be cleared of their sins or to be loved by those who deeply desire to love them. It's not meant to drive us further into into anxiety, but deeper into the heart of Christ himself. His love, which is set on us, and his desire to draw us into himself, that's what's on display by a statement like that. Not an exclusive, snobby, there are some I love more than others, but a, my love is real and is offered through Christ. And there is a free offer for all those who would take hold of it. So for those who have a troubled heart, we hold on to the promise that Jesus secures and is for us the way to God. Third, promise for a troubled heart is that hope is certain because Jesus is God. We've seen this already when he says, from now on you know him and have seen him. The question then arises, well, how, how can that be? How can we come to know the Father? Philip says in verse 8, well, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Almost as if he's exacerbated and, and says, just show us the Father, Jesus. And there's a gentle rebuke there in verse 9. He says, have I, not, have I been with you for so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and his, does in his works, believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me, or else believe in the account of the works themselves. There's a certain hope and trust that is certain because of the words that Jesus says here are true. He is God. There's this mutual indwelling. There's this, this co-essence and unity between the Father and the Son that is indissolvable, that is, though hard for us to fully understand, is nonetheless present that God dwells. The Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father in a unique way that we can take comfort in. He's speaking here not so much about the nature of the Trinity, which would remain in many ways a mystery to people like us, but that there's a unity with the Father and the Son, that the Son is unified with the Father's will and desires and purposes so that they can say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So faith then will take hold of this promise and in it, take comfort in the unity of the Father and the Son. Because as the Father wills, the Son will accomplish. He says, all the words that the Father gave me, I've spoken. I have not spoken, spoken them on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works through me. There is such a unity and submission between the Son to the Father that what the Father wills, the Son will accomplish. In fact, we can go further and say that the heart of the Father is the heart of the Son. That what the Father desires, that is whom he has set his love on and called to himself, Jesus brings to him. 
that they share the same love. Hope is certain for the troubled heart because Jesus is one with the Father. We'll get into this one with the Father more as we get into the following chapters, especially chapter 17, as he prays about the unity of both Father and Son and the unity of the church together. But the promise we take hold on here is that our hope that these things are for our good is certain because Jesus is God, that there is no mistake in Jesus understanding what the Father's will is, that indeed it was the Father's will to crush him, Isaiah would say. It is the Father's will to draw men to himself. In fact, the Father, he says earlier in chapter, in chapter 8, gives Jesus the authority to call and bring people to himself. Hope is certain because Jesus is God. Our fourth promise for those who are troubled is that God is working through you. God works through you. Again, in verse 12, we see truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works in these also because I am going to the Father. Well, what does this mean? Often it's been interpreted as we'll do greater miracles than Jesus will do. Well, it's hard to imagine a greater miracle than raising somebody from the dead, being raised from the dead. So I, I dare say not one of us will do a greater miracle than Jesus. So it's not on the qualitative sense, certainly not. And I don't think it's in the quali- quantitative either. That is, we'll do more works because that's, first of all, obvious enough. Jesus did ministry for three years. There's been 2,000 years of church history. I don't think Jesus means greater in the sense of more. Instead, these greater works are greater simply because they are performed now with greater clarity, greater scope than Jesus' were at the time when he did them. That is, Jesus' works were done and performed before his death and his resurrection. They were, in their way, veiled. Even the disciples did not fully understand them until after the Spirit would come. But the disciples' work, their miracles, their activity, was a clear sign to those who were hearing the preaching of the gospel that what Christ has done and who Christ is is to be believed. So our works then, these greater works that we are called to perform, are set within the already now established framework of the gospel. That is, Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the Father. They are more established now so that they more immediately and truly reveal the Son. Our works point to Jesus, not simply as the one who has done miracles, but as the one who has died and rose again. So this promise is that God is working through his disciples now to bring glory to God. So when our troubled hearts vex us, when we are brought low and our countenance needs lifting, we grab hold of the promise that God works through his people because faith in this promise always will resolve itself to glorify God. It commits itself to the purpose of God's glory in the world. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father, verse 13, may be glorified in the Son. Because Jesus goes to the Father, those who follow after him, who trust in Christ, will do greater works to the glory of God. The promise we hold on to then is God will indeed work through us 
in a greater and a clearer way as we give testimony to Christ through our actions. The fifth promise for those who are troubled in heart is that Christ will meet your needs. We rest read in verse 13, that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we aren't read into this that he means literally anything, a car, a plane, money. This isn't a promise of a Santa Claus-type wish fulfillment. But rather, he's already qualified what kinds of things he will give. That which glorifies the Father in the Son. So all that we ask in order for God's purposes to be realized in our life, Christ will aid us in providing. The promise here for those who have troubled heart, who are questioning whether or not they have true communion with the Lord, is to be reminded that Christ will meet their needs. There's this rumbling anxiety that tends to bubble up within us that leaves us feeling helpless, not understanding or knowing how we are to, to fully walk, faithfully walk in the life that Christ is calling us to do so. And here Christ commits to meet our needs that we may accomplish those greater works for the glory of God. Here then is, is a clear call to prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. If you ask me anything, in my name I will do it. This is a call to prayer to throw our dependence upon God. And it's vital for the sort of joy and quiet peace of our hearts to trust in Christ. Prayer, of course, is an extension of dependence, an extension of our trust. So Christ here offers himself to meet our needs as we come to him for help. And so faith which grabs hold of this promise in the midst of our trials and our troubles Faith will ensure us that Christ is always the source of our help. As the psalm says, I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Christ is the source of our help. Because he will meet our needs, we believe, and our troubles are relieved. This does not mean our circumstances change but that we endure those trials and troubles because we know we have help for the glory of God in the Son in our lives because we have prayed and he meets them. The last promise, and perhaps the greatest, is in verses 15 through 17. That is, Christ will always be with you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father, this is Christ's intercession, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the promise of the Spirit who comes from the Father and the Son to dwell in the midst of believers in their hearts and their lives, to guide them. He calls it a helper, him a helper, elsewhere a comforter a guider. This is a promise, the, the greatest promise and provision of a gift that God gives to his people to meet our needs and to give us peace and to instill within our hearts true joy, the promise of his own presence. He dwells in you, it says. Romans 5 tells us that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God and this love of God is poured into our hearts through the Spirit. 
when we grab hold of this promise that Christ will always be with us, we are comforted then when we are lonely, encouraged when we are weak. We are strengthened by receiving the helping and the guiding spirit of Christ who is in us. This isn't a fortune cookie spirit. This isn't an advice column. This is the indwelling person of Christ in the midst of believers. This is a promise that we must hold on to, friends, if we are to truly work through together our troubles and trials. If we want to hear Christ say to us, let not your hearts be troubled, we must then turn to the second part of that verse, believe in God and believe in me. And what is the source of our faith and trust? It is in his promises he has just laid out to his disciples. When we grab hold of them by faith, trusting, believing that they are true, and we hold fast to those, though our circumstances may not change, our hearts indeed will be quieted. They will be full of joy, strengthened by the comfort that comes to us through the Spirit. The rest of our lives may be long or maybe short, but we will live in submission and in joy and in comfort when we grab hold of these promises. And you know there are many more. But the greatest promise here is that Christ sends the Spirit to those who are His. In order to do this, of course, He must leave. And this is the whole point of what He says to the disciples. I have to go so I can send my Spirit. He must go to the cross He must die. He must make substitution for those whom he loves, for their sins. He must go into the grave. God will vindicate and raise him again, and he will go to the Father so that he can send again his helper. So if we have the Spirit this morning, it is because Christ has died for us. If we have the Spirit this morning and take comfort in his guidance and his help and his his loving uh, help for us, we do so because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross that we would take comfort and joy in that truth through the Spirit. No one comes to the Father, he says, except through me. He has laid down his life so that we may have our own. We have our life in Christ. We have it through the Spirit who points us to Christ who meets our needs and is the source of our help, who enables us to perform good works, even greater works that glorify Christ. It helps us to fix our hope because Jesus is the Son of God. He helps us, of course, to know that Christ is the way to the Father, and so we turn our attention regularly to Him. And that whenever we feel the trouble of our lives sinking in on us, reminded of the truth that we will always have a home with Christ. When He says, believe in God and believe also in me, He tells the troubled heart the way to true joy, which is Himself. Let's pray. God, there is more to the story, more to know, more to experience. And uh, we've simply scratched the surface. But I pray that the, the truth of your word stands clear to us that as you, through Christ, have comforted your disciples, you have taught them that fundamental to their following of Jesus, to their discipleship, is their belief, that the substance of our belief is in your faithfulness. It's in the promises that you've made to us through your word and and we need that faith to grab hold of these promises so that we can deal with our anxieties, our troubled hearts, so we can confront our sins and our sins can be confronted. We 
We need faith that we may look to Christ and see on his cross the penalty for our sins being paid and the resurrection of Christ, the acceptance of our place in heaven. That these are comforts to us who are struggling with whether or not we've measured up. Most certainly we haven't. They're a balm to us who are weary of fighting sin and losing. We're lost or struggling or beat up by the world and we need to be reminded by your word that there are promises for those who are, who are like us. Just stir up faith in our heart, God, to grab hold of these promises that our heart may not be troubled by these things, but instead rejoice in their truth and that these truths lead us to Christ who is not simply a way, but the way. Does not simply show us the way, but becomes for us the very way we come to know you. Help us, Lord, to live these out in meaningful ways and to share with one another how these words are impacting our own troubles and, and trials. And may we be a church that walks with a limp, but with a smile, because these promises are true and are very precious. We thank you as always, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.